welcome to Dyslexia Canada's Spotlight. The goal of this series is to create a national dialogue about literacy and the systemic barriers that have prevented so many students from becoming confident and competent readers. But the tide is turning. Across Canada, educators, researchers, and advocates are coming together to put evidence into practice and to advance the right to read. We want to share their stories, celebrate their successes, and have an open and honest dialogue about the challenges they are facing. Because we know that by coming together, we can ensure that every child in Canada gets off to a good start with reading, school, and life. Thank you for joining us tonight. This is the third episode in Dyslexia Canada's Spotlight series. The idea behind this series was to create a space where we could really showcase the stories of educators and teams and leaders across Canada as they're beginning to transition their instruction to align with evidence-based practices. And I think it's a very exciting time in Canada. I know that there are educators right across the country who are doing amazing work and are really transforming the results that they're seeing both for their students and also transforming what it is to be a school team and creating a new school culture. In planning this series, I reached out to um, people that I knew across the country to ask them, who are the people in your province that I should be speaking to? And last summer, I reached out to Dr. Jamie Mitzella at Mount St. Vincent University, and I asked her, who should I be speaking to in Nova Scotia? Who is really leading the change in Nova Scotia? Who are the educators that are changing their practices and changing their outcomes? And she didn't miss a beat. She said, you need to talk to Andrew Francis and his team. And so I was really pleased to reach out to them and have a chance to meet this team and hear their inspiring story. And I think you're gonna really enjoy it. I am not going to introduce every member of the team. I'm just gonna open it up and invite uh, Andrew to uh, join now and to introduce his team as he goes. So thank you so much for joining us, Andrew, and I will turn it over to you. Thank you very much, Alicia. Um, very happy to be with you all. My name is Andrew Francis, I'm the principal of the Glasgow Academy. And I'm happy to have a few of our team members uh, join us here tonight. The idea of a which which uh, team members are here is one of those things where there's uh, we're never quite sure um, who's in charge, who's on who's on the team in this moment. Um, we've had a few people who have been uh, part of the conversations from I would say the very beginning, um, and then as, as needed based on. Uh, you know, the conversation, the questions and the expertise needed. We've had different folks join. Um, so I'm happy to uh, have a few members of our, our team here uh, tonight. And we'll, uh, we'll I'll introduce them in just a moment. Um, but welcome, everyone. Uh, I'd like to begin tonight acknowledging that uh, we are presenting to you from uh, Nova Scotia, which is in Mi'kma'ki, the ancestral and unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq people. And we acknowledge them as the past, present, and future caretakers of the land. Also like to acknowledge that people of African descent have been in Nova Scotia for over 400 years. And we honor and offer gratitude to those ancestors of African descent who came before us to this land. And this land acknowledgement is very um, motivating uh, for us here in Glasgow Academy, as you'll hear as we as I introduce our school. 
Um, and what does it mean for us to you know, move beyond um, move beyond an acknowledgement, but into the work necessary um, to, to honor those who've come before us and uh, the, the students and community members we have here now. So as part of our team, uh, we have a, a few of our uh, regional staff and some school-based staff. So I'm Andrew, uh, again, I'm the principal. Uh, we have uh, Janet Balgnasse, and uh, each of them will reintroduce themselves as, as they talk about their piece of our, uh, of our story. Uh, Janet is the coordinator of student services for the Chignecto Central Regional Center for Education. Uh, there'll be a test on that one at the end. And uh, Janet, uh, so she um, is coordinator of student services, and a, a couple of her team members um, would be Kyla McLeod, who's with us. She's a school psychologist assigned to this school, as well as a number of other schools. Uh, and Caitlin Mansfield, our uh, school-based speech-language pathologist. Uh, again, she would be what we call family-based, so she has a number of schools that she works with. Uh, and then we're happy to have Kim Bain, who is a learning support teacher, uh, formerly known as resource teacher, um, here at NGA. She works primarily with our primary and one students, um, but as like most schools, ends up um, you know supporting different students at different grades based on some needs and some groups and whatnot. Uh, and we do want to acknowledge that uh, one of our core team members, Christine Williams, uh, couldn't be with us here tonight. She is on a plane and she said, I could try the Wi-Fi on the plane. And we said, no, Christine, you need to uh, not try the Wi-Fi on the plane to present this. Uh, one of our uh, regional student services, she's a regional student services consultant. So she works with Janet and uh, her por portfolio would take the length of the uh, webinar to try to describe. So we won't get into that, but Christine has uh, been a huge member of this work and uh, we're sorry she can't be with us. Um, we miss uh, her knowledge and her enthusiasm, but uh, we'll, we'll soldier on without her. So who we are, so I know we have, uh, Alicia was sharing that we have um, audience members here tonight from across the country, which is obviously pretty cool for us, um, as well as outside of the country. Um, so welcome to all of you and where you, if you don't know where New Glasgow is, um, that's okay. You probably shouldn't if you're not from Nova Scotia. And even if you are from Nova Scotia, you're probably like, oh, it's up there, I think. Uh, so if on the, on the little map there, if you kind of picture PEI being just north of that green uh, segment of uh, the province, that's where we're located. Um, we're just a few minutes from the ferry uh, to PEI. We are uh, pre-primary. So for you Ontario folks, that's kind of uh, the JK world. We're pre-primary to grade eight school. Uh, pre-primary is a bit of a separate entity in Nova Scotia from the, the PETA 12, uh, the PETA 12 work, though obviously we work in the same schools and we, and we do collaborate. Um, my uh, responsibility falls from the primary to grade eight in our school. We have approximately 600 students in our building. Um, so kind of if you want to think of the, uh, the scope of that, we have 14 P to six classrooms. We do have, uh, you know, the we have a primary, a straight primary. We have two one-two splits, two two-three splits. Um, you could probably scratch your head about some of those, but we do have uh, both splits and straight classrooms in that uh, configuration. Uh, in terms of our, so when you're kind of thinking about the story that we're uh, we're going to tell here tonight, we do have. Um, uh, a great number of uh, quality educational assistants in uh, they're about in about half of our classrooms. So it's not like we have one in every class. Um, we we have those based on um, 
medical safety needs. Uh, not they're not there primarily for academic supports, but of course, in the day to day work, they obviously are working closely with kids. But they're not there to um, uh, to do any uh, academic supports. At New Glasgow Academy, approximately 15% of our students identify uh, as African Nova Scotian descent. We have a um, strong African Nova Scotian community in Glasgow, uh, a long running um, community here uh, where, again, a significant portion of our population would identify as such. And about 5% of our students would self-identify as Indigenous. Um, obviously, a big part of uh, everybody's work and responding to the needs in their building is connected uh, with the lens of poverty. And uh, New Glasgow, in the most recent uh, child poverty study in Nova Scotia, New Glasgow came in at uh, approximately 29% of our children would come from homes living in poverty. And that's for New Glasgow as a whole. And we serve, um, we serve uh, kind of a portion of, of, uh, of that community. And, and we do, uh, because of those needs, um, we do have lots of uh, student services type supports, including uh, breakfast, lunch programs, that kind of stuff. So we do have that wraparound mentality towards kids, um, you know, as most schools uh, do these days. And uh, where that kind of all um, lands for us is, uh, as you're going to hear, we do have a community that needs, as all communities do in every province and, and across the country, um, who need effective, efficient teaching. Um, and we have those historically marginalized populations that uh, deserve it even more um, because of the, uh, the historical nature of um, their experiences. And you're going to hear that woven through tonight um, is trying to respond to uh, the needs of those students, but really the needs of every student um, in our classrooms. So I'm going to pass things over to Janet, and she's going to uh, give you a bit of uh, background on our provincial and regional context just to set the scene. Thank you, Andrew. And uh, so I'm Janet Belignassi, and it's been a bit of a professional journey and personal journey to get here. If you had told me five years ago as coordinator of student services, we would be working this hard on effective reading and instruction, I probably wouldn't have believed you. But, you know, in, in taking that job as coordinator of student services, and I looked back, there were some keen observations that we made um, around the work in student services. And I, I think it, it doesn't matter probably anywhere in the country where you are doing this work that you wouldn't recognize some of the same observations of large caseloads and wait lists, high numbers of referrals, um, a general feeling of we need more support from staff or from school staff, and essentially that our, our staff are drowning in tier three intervention. And so the vision was really, how do we do our work differently, more efficiently, reduce that duplication, um, lean into a little bit more of that prevention work so that we're reducing the number of students that require interventions. And really from a, a coordinator position of how do I make these jobs for our staff more sustainable so that they can do better for our kids. And so some of that kind of flowed really nicely with the implementation of the inclusive education policy in Nova Scotia you know, essentially ensuring a high quality, culturally and linguistically responsive education to support well-being and achievement. And so with that launch and implementation came a lot of innovative, creative new positions into our system, including 
some additional speech language pathology positions and school psychology positions. And so we were doing the work of implementing using an MTSS framework and really identifying our roles in student services across tiers. And threaded in there was a lot of culturally responsive pedagogy in our region, which was also a provincial focus, but I would say our region uh, with our current director, it had been a really strong focus in 2019 onwards. And layering in there with those high expectations, building authentic relationships with students and strategically placing students lived experience at the center of the learning. So all of those things were cushioning kind of the work that we were doing in student services to really do better for kids. And so, and then came the pandemic and a response to that was that focus in our region on literacy from P to three, which was essentially an increase in guided reading. And schools were, were working really hard and doing everything uh, that they were supposed to be doing. And still the data wasn't changing for our students. So when I look back, we were, we were implementing inclusive ed. We were working through MTSS. We were looking at the, our marginalized communities and we were focused on responding after the pandemic. And still, despite additional resources, our staff are still drowning in tier three. And so it really became imperative to look at what, it's not about more, it's how are we improving that instruction at the classroom level at tier one. And so that really led us into this foray of literacy. And there were several aha moments from uh, speech language pathologists and school psychologists that really made me think differently. And as a department, try to respond differently to that work. I will give you a little background, a uh, brief background on the literacy context in our province. So it does direct teachers and practices that adhere to balanced literacy. We have tier two support and early literacy support, um, which potentially could be one-on-one, -on -one, but is generally in a group of three and uh, reading recovery as a tier three intervention. And that is a provincial, and at this point would probably be in every elementary school in our province. So segueing into that, into what has been a familiarization year this year with the six pillars of effective reading instruction. So our department has um, looked at that reading is enhanced when explicit and systematic instruction of all of those pillars occurs and that reciprocal relation is optimized. So really we know that we have to have that effective um, explicit instruction, systematic, synthetic um, and strengthening those first few pillars. And so not in lieu of the other pillars, but strengthening those first few. And so I think throughout the evening, you'll see how that, that work was started at NGA and really now they can take this tool and, and move things forward. Thanks, Janet. So really what we have tonight is a story. Um, it is uh, not a finished story. It is not a, an example of a correct story, but rather um, a story of a staff who have come together uh, to respond to the needs of the kids in the school, regardless of um, their own preparation um, by using uh, the best available research and instructional strategies that we have, um, and to do it in a way that 
really drills down into what does each individual child need. So with that CRP lens, you know, it is uh, about getting to know students in in your classroom, um, but it's not just knowing their their you know their their cultural capital or their background or their you know their experiences, but rather who they are as learners and, and really what do they need. Uh, so where this all started was when we were, we, I wouldn't say we're out of a pandemic, of course, but as we started to, to uh, we came back from uh, the time we'd been off on virtual learning here in Nova Scotia, as Janet mentioned, we had a, a focus on uh, P to three literacy and recognizing that um, we had to dig in with those students to ensure that uh, the time they missed while off on virtual learning was not time that would hamper them for the rest of their lives. So we had that focus on literacy. And if, if you're wondering, if you're coming to this from a, a school-based context, sometimes the principal is the last to know what the conversations are that are, have been happening in the hallways and in classrooms. I was probably 70% uh, of the way through the process by the time I learned. So what where we came to all of this was we had, uh, we'd been identified at, at NGA uh, prior to me being a principal here as a priority school, which was a school that was in need of extra supports due to uh, achievement levels of, of the kids. And so, our, you know, historically we had data that we, we were not proud of and it would be um, uh, not for a lack of, of depth of care or competency of our teachers, but rather just a not gaining the traction that those those kids deserved and and the teachers knew the kids were capable of so when we were asked to focus on p to three literacy some conversations were already happening um, and kim who's with us here tonight was part of one of those conversations that i didn't even know was happening until i came to it a little bit later so i come to this from a, a high school perspective so i'm high school trained i taught in high school my first five years of administration we're all in high school and uh, when I got here, I, I thankfully didn't really have any idea of how kids learn to read. I didn't have any preconceived notions. I'd had no teaching experience of myself in the elementary classrooms. Uh, so I was allowed to be curious. I had to be curious. And uh, thankfully, I had some people, uh, lots of people in the school who could be curious right along with me. Uh, so our, our teachers were already having conversations um, about trying to respond differently with those two pillars around phonological awareness and phonics. Some of our teachers were, were doing the work within their own small group instruction time with kids, um, but kind of keeping it quiet, uh, not wanting anybody to know because it wasn't something that they thought they should be doing. And other people in the school knew that we had to change some things. So when I was asking questions about like, how does this, how is this all supposed to work? The, the conversation had been bubbling for a while. And Caitlin and Kyla, who are on uh, this webinar with us tonight, School Psych and SLP, stopped me in the hallway one day and said, you know, Andrew, can we talk to you about literacy? Can we talk to you about reading? And I'm like, yes, please, please explain this to me. So they started to share their understanding of, you know, science of reading, structured literacy, how this uh, should work, could work with uh, most neurotypical uh, children. And uh, they said, there's, there's a, this isn't magic, Andrew. There is a scope and sequence of how we need to be instructing. And kids are missing out on a couple of these key pieces. And they, they walked me through Scarborough's reading rope, um, talked to me you know, very uh, explicitly as I needed uh, around decoding um, phonological awareness. And I was coming into this role uh, interested in skills. So what are, what are the skills kids have? What are the skills that they still need development on? And that fit really nicely with, obviously, the understanding of uh, science of reading structured literacy. 
So they were able to say, well, well, there's ways in which we can identify what the kids still need work on, what they've already mastered um, through screeners, diagnostic data, and that kind of stuff. So we decided to, uh, as our focus on literacy here at NGA, we wanted to be explicit and systematic. Um, we recognized that we needed to, we were, uh, we needed to allocate more resources to those grades. So we needed to, but we needed to get at it systematically. So we did some things, but what I think is really important is that we grounded everything in, in a few different things. Um, and one of those things would be beliefs. So what I need you to know about the uh, core group or really all the teachers at NGA are up and down the line, regardless of grade, uh, were here. They, they knew what they, they were taking on when they joined a, a priority school. They were here because they wanted to do the, the good work um, that these kids needed. And the at the with we are we had the the teachers we had the ability but what they didn't have is necessarily the tools, and what we really had to start with was before we got into those talking about those tools is what we had to kind of navigate and and figure out and and talk about as a staff was uh, that shared belief that all kids with enough time practice equitable and responsible teaching can learn. That's uh, value number one in our inclusive ed policy, and it's lived by all of our staff here at NGA. Uh, there, were, there are no excuses. Um, there is no, well, that's so-and-so's brother. You know, the brother couldn't sit in class and do well, so they can't either. Um, we believe that we just haven't figured it out yet for that kid, but we would, need, we would be able to respond to the needs of that, of that child. The depth of care of our staff. Um, is one of the most important factors. And again, I know staffs across the country all care, uh, but what I've noticed as the leader is uh, they're here for the long haul. They are in it um, to support these kids and their professionalism. They're willing to be vulnerable and, and challenge their own um, prepar teacher preparation, their own understandings, the amount of time they would have spent uh, digging into this process on their in their free time um, has just been incredible, and it's all about increasing their impact. That, and we believe that we could. As I mentioned, our school has historically underperformed in uh, most of our literacy assessments. We do have a significant population of uh, historically marginal, marginalized communities, and with the supportive conversations of working with Janet, uh, Christine, and uh, the student services staff, we really recognize that uh, we couldn't intervene ourselves out of what we all know is a tier one problem. We had been given this influx with the inclusive ed implementation, influx of staffing and um, supports, but why wait for the fail when we know we can do preventative work? I'll talk about this in a little more detail before, but where this all started was in collaborative conversations and staff being vulnerable enough to say, here's what I know and here's what I don't know. Here's what I've been doing and here's, here's what I need help with. Uh, without those collaborative conversations, without those pre-existing relationships among our student services, you know, family-based staff, with our teachers, with our school-based um, student services resource uh, staff, without those relationships, we don't have this story. Uh, that was uh, foundational in everything we've done here. So I'm going to ask uh, Caitlin and Kyla to take you through kind of what we did. But the most important thing I recognized as the school leader was it's not about doing more if teachers would only work harder. They were working as hard. They were, they were already operating uh, by dipping into the reserve tanks. Uh, they couldn't work harder. We needed to be smarter. We needed to get more strategic. Uh, so I'm 
happy to share a bit of our strategy here, and then Caitlin and Kyle will talk uh, in a little more detail. So what we just decided, this was uh, kind of our one of our guiding documents almost eight, 18 months, two years ago. As we said, we're going to use the best available research, and we're going to get everybody in the school to understand how kids uh, learn how to read. Doesn't matter what you teach, doesn't matter what your role is, we're all going to do that. Then we're going to identify kids' skills around decoding and phonological awareness with diagnostic data. And then we're going to plan for our responses with it, that MTSS, the multi-tiered system of support uh, lens, where here's what we're going to do for tier one instruction. Here's uh, what our kids who need tier two, and here's our, our kids who need tier three. And, we're, and we don't have a box. We don't have a plan. We don't have a, this is exactly how this is going to work. Uh, what we knew is we had to do something. And we would we build the plane as we as we flew, and teachers would tell us what they needed, and we would, as a leadership team, do the best to support that those teachers in the classrooms based on their uh, students in their class and what the teacher was already prepared to do with them. And one of the lessons that we learned was we really and we could go and we could talk about this for hours as we often do, but we'll try and keep it a little tighter. And where one of the big things we decided, what we figured out uh, along our way, this was an imperfect process, is it wasn't just about what are the tools, what's the program, you know, UFLY's out there, like there's there's lots of, you know, tools that people are trying to um, implement in their classrooms and in their systems, but it's not just about you know, what is it that we're going to do? We really have to ground it in the why of, uh, that sense of purpose, um, those shared beliefs, the how is that bigger picture of the systematic uh, explicit teaching, and then let's get into the what. And we at NGA here, I would say we kind of jumped right to the, the what part, and we realized, um, well, no, we're going to dial it back a little bit, and we're really going to, if you've seen Simon Sinek's YouTube videos, uh, it, it's resonated with me for a number of years, but we really had to get to that core, why do we need to do something differently? What is the the broader strategy, and then let's get into the details. But we had to get everybody right into that uh, that centered why before we could build out. So, uh, Caitlin and Kyla are going to take you through the next uh, little bit here. So I'm Kyla McLeod, school psychologist with the Glasgow Academy, and I'm going to take you through the first couple of phases of what we did. Although at the time when we started, we didn't really know that they were phases that they turned into. Um, but our first was what Andrew mentioned with the kind of our pre-implementation before we really got started. It was a lot of conversations with staff and with administration, like Andrew said, talking about what was happening in classrooms already. What were teachers concerned with? What were they seeing in their students um, in, as far as skills? What, what were they seeing that the, the students were doing really well versus what they were struggling with? Um, and looking at, you know, we wanted to gather some information to start working with, start looking at the skills that, that students had already and how, how they were using them. Um, and at this, at this point, we actually discussed kind of trying to keep our focus with P to 2 or P to 3, but the teachers in the rest of the school were so interested that we ended up kind of expanding our kind of service delivery up to grade 5 and 6 in that year. So we also looked at in January and February, um, beginning with a full staff professional development on the how of learning to read, um, how the brain processes reading, and how we 
how the instruction that we use can, can change how students' brains respond to how they read. Uh, this was a full staff professional development, primary to eight. We wanted everyone involved so that we could look at our students as literacy learners throughout the time we had them at school, not just at one grade level. And we didn't want this to be seen as a, you know, a primary to two issue or a primary to two responsibility. Our students are literacy learners throughout the time we have them at school, and we wanted everyone involved in how they learn to read and how they continue to build their literacy skills over time. Uh, that PD generated a lot of interest and a lot of discussion. And from there, we really uh, started sharing information. So it wasn't um, all information coming from a lead team. It was teachers sharing with other teachers, teachers sharing with us and us sharing with them, really kind of information gathering and sharing. Hi, everyone. Um, as mentioned earlier, my name is Caitlin Mansfield. I am the school-based speech-language pathologist. So in addition to working at New Glasgow Academy, I also work at two other schools in the New Glasgow area. So as Kyla mentioned, we did that knowledge building phase where we really built a really strong foundational understanding of the why. And then from there, around the tail end of February, start of March, we ended up looking at those literacy tools, reevaluating them and looking at them. And so the tools that I'm, I'm going to talk here really do fit in that diagnostic category of a tool. So the reason that we chose it was because one, it gave us an understanding of the foundational skills that students have or they need to develop and to be able to provide a really good instructional starting point of, of where we're going to be able to support our, our students. And so um, we sat with teachers in March and we went over something called the quick phonological awareness test. So really we modified that. So we looked at students' phonemic awareness skills. So beginning sound identification, ending sound identification, moving up to being able to blend sounds together, take them apart. We also talked as a team about the core phonics survey, which really what that does is it looks at students' ability to apply their phonics knowledge to be able to decode words. And so that goes from CBC words and moves up in complexity to words that digraphs, words blends, vowel teams, and all the way up to multisyllabic words. And so we reviewed again the why we're using them, what information is it going to tell us, how do we administer them, and then from there we made a plan of how are we going to administer them. And so we wanted to make sure that we provide our staff with the time to be able to do this. And so when we had conversations about who's going to administer them, most, if not all, teachers said, we want to be the ones that administer them. We want to be able to, to do this with our students. And so we provided release time for our teachers so that they could do this work. Um, once that was collected, we did that within a week from primary to five. We were able to meet back with our teachers just before March break of March 2022. And really, we analyzed the data um, in our professional learning communities by grade level. So we, we, our lead team met with our primary ones, our twos, threes, our fours, and our fives. And we started to dive into that data a little bit. So looking at trends, things that we were noticing that students had well-developed in, in those areas of need. And so from there, once we sat with the data and we looked at those trends, what we noticed was regardless of if the students were in you know primary or they're in grade five, we had whole groups of students who really needed intensive support in 
being able to decode CDC words, for example, or really needed support in some of those phonemic awareness skills. And so to be able to support that and respond to that need, we planned um, ongoing lunch and learns. And so really the beginning of our lunch and learns were really about looking at the data and how do we make decisions around whether or not we do these lessons as a whole class format, where do we need to do small group instruction, um, and then getting into conversations again around the tier one, the tier two, and tier three need. And so these lunch and learns were ongoing in March and April and really tried to plan for them for every few weeks. And then in April, we had the pleasure of having Thelma Gregan join our school for a half day PD. So Thelma Gregan is um, from the Scottish Rite. And so she really did a deep dive into that structured literacy. So we already set the context for the, the why. We had the data. And so the structured literacy PD really walked through those elements of structured literacy um, and specifically focusing on those foundational level skills. And so discussions around syllables, syllable types, how do kids decode and encode or spell words. And then from there, we continue with our lunch and learns. And over this time, teachers were beginning to systematically respond to their students' needs. And then we moved into this continued instruction and then eventually the data collection phase again. And so from April into June, we kept going with that explicit tier one, two, and three instruction. We continued to respond to student needs, and then also getting feedback from teachers about what those lunch and learns could look like. So at the start of those lunch and learns, we as a team had set some topics, but then we really wanted to make sure we were getting feedback from our teachers so that we're able to answer their questions and support them as best as we could. And so that looked like going more into what an explicit phonics instruction or routine looks like and walking through that. And then in June, what we did was we re-administered those diagnostics and started to really look at the data. So as part of our regional uh, focus on literacy, we, we report out on uh, reading levels, instructional reading levels uh, every six weeks, P to three, so or grades one to three, kind of September to December, and P to three, January to June. And what we have found uh, compared to where we've been in the past is the learning is sticky. The learning um, is becoming those foundational building blocks that we all know uh, kids need. And, you know, when we use instructional reading levels, I recognize we're using, you know, predictable text. And I recognize that it that comes out of the balanced literacy world. But we say, okay, if you if you have the foundational skills, and again, there might be some mismatch on in terms of skills and, and the text, the, the level text that the students are reading. But generally, our goal is by the time you leave grade three, you are a proficient reader and you should be able to read a developmentally appropriate text, uh, regardless of its, you know, decodable, predictable, whatever. So we do continue to collect uh, reading levels and our region and province continue to uh, analyze that data value that data. So we're happy, obviously, to continue to provide it. And the way we have things broken down in our region is uh, if you're at uh, or above level, you would be considered a meeting. And we use the uh, benchmark assessment. So if you're at the level, then you're considered meeting. If you're within one or two levels of meeting, you're called, you're, you're labeled, uh, student is labeled as approaching. And if you're beyond those two levels, uh, you're in what we call the limited category. So just to share some of our initial uh, data, 
So if you uh, look at, and again, recognizing that we moved our grade threes out of the cohort that we were analyzing at, in June, um, but generally you can, there's some important information in here. So the percentage increase of students meeting, we had 40 in September of last year. So uh, 16 months ago, 42% of our overall uh, grades one to three in this case uh, would have been to, at the meeting level. By the time we had them uh, in June, uh, they were at 64%. And again, like no one was high-fiving, we've, we've, we've done it, we've solved all the problems when 35% of our kids are still not uh, at uh, meeting level. Uh, but what we've noticed is uh, this September, when we did our first data collection, instead of being at 42% of meeting, we're at 70, which again, grade one to three. So with just three months of that systematic structured literacy instruction, uh, we're coming in where kids are at 70%. Again, we're we're pleased with that. We know we're not done. Uh, that's seventy percent, which obviously leaves us with another thirty left to go. But it is a significant uh, number for us because you know we everybody uh, is well aware of that summer brain drain, uh, where kids seem to uh, magically forget all of uh, or a good portion of the things that they were taught the previous year. And what we found is we didn't have that drop off coming back in September. The students were already at a higher level because they had the skills. It wasn't because of the familiarity of the text. It wasn't because they'd just been so immersed in it. It's because they now knew what that letter on the page represented in terms of a sound and how that sound blended. Um, they could work through the text without having to look up to the adult and say, is that right? Or to ask for, you know, to for them to kind of hopefully, you know, infer what the right word might be. From September 2021 to now to 2022, our African Nova Scotian students in the meeting category have went from 44 to 78%. Again, still 22 left to go, but a significant increase. One of the things that Janet has highlighted is the number of students in need of tier two and tier three intervention. Um, and so we wanna think about those kids most likely coming out of the limited category in terms of this categorization. Uh, in September 2021, we had 53 students in that. Uh, by the end of the year, that was just grades one to three. And at the end of the year, from primary to three, we only had 15. So a 71.6% reduction in the number of students um, who needed that extra intervention. From September last year to September this year, we've actually decreased the number of students in that limited category uh, by 60% um, from September to September. In a PLC meeting, our professional learning communities, uh, we have uh, that once every eight days for an hour based on mostly grade level. We, I was in those conversations uh, and I said, um, okay, so like Kim would have been in the conversation, um, our reading recovery uh, achievement gap uh, teacher would have been in the conversation. I said, okay, folks, so let's just, just give me a snapshot of, of caseloads. Like, how are we doing? Who's, who's waitlisted? Like, who, ha who haven't we gotten to yet? And one of the other uh, learning support teachers was in the room and they're, they're, they're talking, the three of them are kind of just, you know, conferring for a moment and say, no, Andrew, I think we've got everybody. If they need it, we've got them. And I said, okay, so is that typical? Thinking it's not, but not wanting to kind of get ahead of myself. Uh, and the, one of our, our reading recovery teacher, again, she has 50% reading recovery, 50% uh, what we call uh, achievement gap literacy support. So working with our African Nova Scotian students, uh, experienced primary teacher prior to that, she said, Andrew, uh, that includes the primaries. And we normally aren't able to get to primaries in terms of intervention support until April um, because of the, the caseloads we have to go through. 
just a massive difference in being able to wrap our arms around the kids in the school, ensuring that we have that high level of tier one instruction. And then the caseloads for our tier two, tier three work are not so unmanageable that we're just able to tread water and spread ourselves so thin that we can't do um, impactful work because we're trying to do it for too many. Um, so 15 students in P to three, like we can do that. 53 students in grades one to three, that's a challenge. Uh, so it is incredibly encouraging for me as a principal, our support staff and teachers to know that uh, there's not going to be a four-month wait list for you know, a student who needs help now. One way or another, uh, we'll be able to find them a support, the support, because the actual numbers of kids who need it allow us to do that. Uh, Caitlin is going to speak to a bit of uh, our diagnostic data. So here's a, just a snapshot of the diagnostic data that was collected from March to June of last year. So this would be for all grade one students. Um, this is just an example of the movement we noticed by skill specifically for that core phonics survey. By no means all of the skills that we collected for our students, but again, just a snapshot. In March, when we collected that data the first time to where they were at in June. Um, and so the way that the core phonics survey is set up, so again, it goes from CVC to decoding blends and it increases in complexity. But based on that score, it really categorizes kids as needing either intensive support in that specific skill, needing some review, or they've mastered that skill. And so as an example here, looking at kids' abilities to be able to go to code CVC words, um, we look at our group of grade ones when they started in March, um, we had 46% of our kids who required that intensive support. So it was really challenging. And we only had 30% of our students who were mastered in that skill. So from that March to June, so in a very short period of time, went from 46% of students needing specific intensive support for decoding CDC, for example, down to 6%. The mastery from pre to post, 30% mastery up to 61%. And as you look at those skills as you move on, again, blend 64% of students needing that strategic are really intensive support rather, down to 18%. And so in a short period of time, there was really amazing growth. Um, considering again, we, we're pilots and we're building that, we're that plane. Um, and so that's just a testament to the really hard work that the, the teachers did during this time. And then the first snapshot of the diagnostic data for grade twos, similar idea again, just a snapshot, not everything that we collected, but when we look at pre-CBC in March, um, we had 40% of students who were mastered on that skill. And then when we look at June, 67% were mastered. We moved all of the students out of requiring intensive support for that skill. And so really what we noticed when we looked at the data for all students across all grade levels, they all demonstrated some growth. Okay, hi everyone. Uh, my name's Kim, Kim Bain, and I'm a teacher at New Glasgow Academy. Uh, thanks for having me tonight. I'm, I'm humbled to be here. I'm happy to be here. I have worn a lot of hats um, over my years in Chignecto Central uh, area. Um, I've been teaching for 26 years and I've seen the world of teaching and learning through a lot of lenses. I've seen it through the, the eyes of a classroom teacher, a phys ed teacher, a literacy mentor, and for a short time as a, a VP filling in for mat leave. And now I'm in the role of a learning support teacher at New Glasgow Academy. 
with all of those years behind me, I'm by no means any expert in structured literacy, but I'm happy to be here tonight to share with you all the things I now know that I didn't know all those years. So I'm going to take a look at, uh, walk you through some of the impacts that we've seen at our school. So I'm going to start with the most important people in our world, and that's our students. We're seeing greater engagement in the activities that we're doing, not just our struggling students, but also our, our students who are reading at grade level. We're seeing students engaged. Students who were once reluctant to participate are now actively engaged and involved in the activities. And because of this increased engagement, they're having fun. Because of the engagement, we're seeing fewer behaviors in our classrooms as well. So some of the struggling students who may have avoided tasks um, in the past that they found difficult are now engaged and having fun. So that's a huge thing. We're seeing a lot more engagement. We're seeing greater confidence in our students and our teachers. Our students who are struggling are now seeing themselves as readers. And those who are already at grade level are confident about the newfound skills that they have. So I had a, a child come up to me the other day and that's and said to me, did you know that I can spell big words now? And I said, tell me more about that. And they said, they went on to tell me about syllables and how if they could spell, spell small parts in a word, then they could put it all together and spell and read larger words. So even our most, even our strong students are learning new things and, and applying those in their learning. So their confidence is, is growing immensely. I have a student right now um, that I'm working with one-on-one -on -one who struggles in reading and she is now asking to bring a friend along to some of her lessons so she can show her friend what she's learned. And uh, she's proud of the fact that she's learning these new things. And her friend who comes along doesn't struggle in reading, but she too is learning and, and having fun alongside this other student. So the confidence is, is growing and uh, in our students and our teachers. We're seeing um, student improvement and success, as you've already heard. I won't talk to you about the facts and figures and the numbers, but now that we are teaching more explicitly and systematically, we are without a doubt seeing improvement and, uh, and the teachers are thrilled and, and the kids are too. We are seeing joy in learning. We, uh, we've been missing joy for a while, I think with COVID. And um, I can tell you right now that there is no greater joy in the world than to see the excitement in a child or one of our students who realizes that they have just read really, really read their first word or their first sentence or their first book. And there's been more than one occasion uh, in the past year or two that I've had tears in my eyes because a student has, has uh, sounded out letters and blended them together and realized that what came out of their mouth was a word. And then they're putting that together to read phrases and sentences. So there is so much joy that's happening. Yeah, learning is, is full of joyful moments when our students are successful and we work so hard to get them to be successful. And uh, it, it's nice to see the joy on our kids' faces and our, our teachers' faces too. I work with some students, a student that has some behavioral challenges and I use a first then board with her to get her motivated and to do some tasks. So um, last week, after we did our, our activity for her reward or her fun activity, she asked me to print some letters on the whiteboard so she could tell me the sounds and what word went with that sound and letter. So, so that was her fun activity. So there's lots of joy and engagement. So that, that's some of the impact it's had on our students, but it's also had a huge impact on our teachers. So I'm just going to speak to you from the heart, um, from my perspective and share with you what, what I've heard a lot of my colleagues saying as well. The first, the big impact we've had is, is our increase in knowledge and, uh, 
we have learned a lot um, over these past two years, and we're still learning a lot about how children learn to read. Most of us, if not all of us, didn't receive some of this, a lot of this knowledge when we went through our teacher training, training programs. I, I know certainly I didn't. Um, I went through a phys ed program to start with, and I always felt like I maybe missed the boat because of the route I took where I where it was first a phys ed teacher and then a classroom teacher. And I thought maybe I missed something. So I worked extra hard to make sure that I didn't. But I'm realizing that I didn't actually miss the boat on some of this, this literacy instruction. It just, it just didn't happen or we didn't receive it. So at New Glasgow Academy, we've been given the opportunity to learn more through our lunch and learns, through PD sessions, um, through our collaborative time. And, and many of us have done stuff on our own as well. So we are being given the information in order to better understand how children learn to read. And, and now that we have that information, we're beginning to implement this in our classrooms and, and, and be more effective teachers of reading. So in the beginning, we didn't know what we didn't know, but we do now, and we can't ignore that. And we're not ignoring that. And, uh, and, and we're moving forward and it's, it's all the hard work is really paying off. So our teachers are seeing a greater confidence in their ability to identify the needs of our students and also to plan and implement the next steps. So we use screeners, um, as was mentioned before, um, and these have been a game changer, I know for me personally and other teachers. So we, we were given the time to do the screeners and then we were also equally important, we were given the time to look closely at the data and look at our classes and our individual students and discuss it as a team. And by doing this, we were able to bounce ideas off each other and, and, and go to the people who know more than we do and, and our psychologists and our speech pathologists and our, our program support people. And we were able to better identify the needs and how we can address them and, and what needs do we need to look at as a whole class support and what do we need, what students need to be seen at a, a tier two or tier three level. So it has helped, it's helped us take the guesswork out of what our students need. And because of the support, our teachers and, and I feel better equipped to identify the needs and, and plan how we're going to address those. We're not, we don't feel we're left to figure it out on our own. Um, I had a student um, text me a, a little while ago about her class data and, and, and where she should go next and what she should address with tier, tier, uh, tier one um, versus who she should refer for tier two or tier three. And, and I didn't at first didn't really feel confident in answering that. So I reached out with a text to, to Caitlin, our speech language pathologist, who then, you know, we bounced ideas off each other. So it, it's very much a team effort and, and none of us are afraid to say, I don't know, but I'm gonna keep asking for you or we're gonna find the answer and figure this out together. So, um, but I think all of us are now feeling more confident that we are, are able to identify the needs. The teachers are feeling they can impact all students. So, so I mentioned earlier how we're seeing all students benefiting from, from our improvement in reading instruction. And the way we taught before, I know the way I taught before, I was meeting the needs of, of some of the students, probably the ones that might've met anyway, um, it's humbling to say, but we weren't meeting the, the needs of enough or all of them. So one of my aha moments was when I became a learning support teacher and I realized that the way I was teaching kids to read wasn't good enough. And that I knew I was in my heart that I was doing everything I could, but I still, it still wasn't enough. And I needed to change some of the things about the way that I was teaching kids to read, but I didn't know how to do that. So uh, by going to our, our teaching support team meetings and things, I started to listen to Caitlin and Kyla and thought, gosh, these same names are coming up every year. Why aren't we 
able to reach these kids. Um, so we started having some conversations about you know, what I can do differently as a, a program support teacher, because what I'm doing you know, met the needs of some, but not, not the ones that I really, really wanted to meet and needed to meet. So fast forward to today, and now here we are, and we're changing the way we're teaching, and we're having a greater impact on our, on our students. Another impact has been the strong support system that we've um, established through collaborating together. So as you can imagine, we have had some pretty courageous conversations, some difficult conversations through this whole process. And through these conversations, we, we exposed it all. We, our concerns, our worries, our struggles, and this has made our team stronger. And now we realize that none of us have all the answers and that it's okay to not know something and um, we know we're in it together. So I'm really proud to be that we've been brave enough as a team to jump in and to learn all that we can and, and to do better for our students. And, and the fact that Andrew was vulnerable, you know, could, could expose his vulnerabilities and say, hey, you know what, I, I don't know about this. I come from the high school background. I think that made us feel more comfortable in saying, okay, you know what, I've been a literacy mentor and a classroom teacher for a long time, but I Still don't know this either so we're, we're figuring it out together and 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 I think as a result we're feeling recharged and, and hopeful and uh, we're seeing results and sharing successes and smiling and it's really good to know that our efforts are paying off so for those of you that are administrators out there or decision makers in our school if, I, I really feel that if you give your teachers the knowledge and the tools to do better that they're not going to let you down that they really want the best for their students and uh, you know, we, we have teachers that work harder than any people I've ever seen, and uh, they're doing it for the kids, and, and I think your staffs will too. So that's a little bit about how it has impacted our, our students and our teachers, and, and just myself as a learning support teacher, my caseload is, as my referrals have reduced, and we're now able to identify and target um, problems within the classroom, and the kids that are being referred for tier two and tier three supports are, are now getting it. And we're just, just, uh, we're, we're working through it and we're learning and, and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just about teary eyed. So I'm going to stop there, but, uh, thanks for uh, listening to a, a bit about my journey and, and our story. I'm, I'm texting the group in private saying I could listen to Kim talk all day where someone said that. And, uh, it's just so wonderful to hear that perspective from Kim and, you know, grounded in the work of the day-to-day -day with the students. So thank you, Kim, for, for sharing with us as always. I think uh, Janet's going to talk to us a bit about regional supports. Yeah. So um, I will say that I am incredibly proud of, you know, our, our staff in student services. Caitlin and Kyla and Christine, who are, you know, very integral to this team, but I, I need to acknowledge that there are leaders across student services doing this work and have been forging along on this path in the support of staff and students with well-being and achievement, but in particular around reading. And so, uh, you know, this isn't a school in isolation doing this work in our region. And it's uh, the there's no one that's not working hard in student services in the support of this work, and I'm I'm really proud of that. And the evidence is is that you know their scope and practice of the SLPs and school psychologists in particular, they are respected members of this staff at NGA. But you know when you meet with others across the region, they are respected members of their staff in the schools that they are a circuit staff person in and that's 
due to the work that they're doing, the relationships that they're building, and the expertise and the skills that they bring, the passion and the research and, and knowing what is the right work based on their assessments and recommendations that they can make. So there's real momentum across our region. In NGA throughout this, you can tell, and we, we can see that there's been a true implementation of an MTSS model where students' needs are being met across tiers. It's not perfect. We're still on a journey here. But as a region, in response to some of this, we've um, started a rollout of Tier 3, so Wilson Reading Systems in our, in our region, which is a bit backwards. But uh, we knew we had to start somewhere because we have students in our region right now who are not reading and, and need those that intervention. And so the schools that are really doing that effective Wilson reading systems are starting to see how do we improve our tier one and our tier two. So that's the next evolution of this. What I will say is Dr. Jamie Metzella talked about when evidence and equity meet, and this is, this is the true equity work. This is the, the leveling of the playing field if we can improve reading skills in all of our students. And so regionally, we're collaborating on those next steps um, to bring this work in the broader across the region. I won't, uh, I won't talk too much about the impact on my own position, but I do want to say three things about what this work has done as far as my role as a school psychologist. And one of them is really the prevention, the supporting the prevention of literacy challenges as we're seeing improvements across students, uh, some of our some of my colleagues have mentioned that there's been less referrals for um, psychiatric assessments, fewer referrals for learning support, fewer fewer referrals required for tier two and tier three supports. So that prevention in the way that we're uh, teaching has been a game changer. Secondly, the it's had an impact on, for those students that have been referred for psych and assessments, it's had an impact on the reliability of the diagnosis that we're able to give. We, we can tell what skills a student has been explicitly taught. So when we're assessing those skills, we know the impact of the, the instruction in the classroom and the background knowledge that they have. And thirdly is the direction following assessments. When I meet with a school, this school staff following a psych ed assessment, everyone is on board, especially for a reading, a reading literacy concern, everyone's on board with where to go to support that student. They know what supports have been provided already, what specific areas the student is struggling in and what specific roles we all play in how to support that student in following an assessment. Uh, and that has been a real game changer for me, that collaborative direction that we're all taking together to be able to support our students. Um, so just being mindful of the time, um, I'm just gonna share a few brief points. So as a speech language pathologist providing services and supports within the context of literacy, it's one part of my scope of practice. But again, within that context, over the last few years, I've always felt like I'm working really in that tier three, at tier two level of supports. And so it's it's felt really top heavy. And so trying my best to be able to provide those assessments in, in language and literacy and trying to provide um, intervention and supports for students specific to literacy and just never feeling like there was enough. And so that was really, for me, that 
the driver for rethinking the way that I was providing like my services and supports. And so thinking about it at a tier one level. And so for me, I've, I've started to shift out of that tier two, tier three, and really into a true tier one level. And so really just rethinking the way in which I provide the supports, um, shifting more from in isolation to more truly collaborative services, which is absolutely a big piece of my job that I love. And I love that I get to do that and get to work with such wonderful staff at New Glasgow Academy and really just feeling more systematic in the approach and the way that I'm providing my services to help support students and staff. Thanks, Caitlin. I'll, I'll close out with just um, a couple comments about, you know, the, the title of tonight is Reculturing Literacy in a, in a School. And, you know, lots of us uh, school leaders, everybody reads, you know, professional self-help books, let's call them. And, and one that has stuck with me for a long time, a number of probably five or six years now, is uh, Daniel Coyle's The Culture Code. And I think it frames up really well the culture of what's happening here around not just literacy instruction now, but really our approach to, uh, to problem solving, to uh, attention to individual student needs and how we work within that MTSS framework. And the three key takeaways from uh, Coyle's book are most all successful groups really have these three characteristics, which is a sense of safety, a sense of vulnerability, and a shared purpose. And these aren't built, you know, necessarily foundationally one after the other, although, of course, because he writes a book, he has to present them that way. But really, the, the big thing here is at NGA, it's okay to say, I don't know how to do that yet. Or can you tell me more about this? Because there is no, there's no professional threat um, there is no uh, group at the back uh, snickering. How, how how do you not know that? What we've what we've done is kind of all put our cards on the table and said like, here's what my kids have, are capable of doing, and here's what I need help with, and being okay with acknowledging that while always directing ourselves towards that um, shared purpose, that horizon that we're never you know we'll, we'll probably never hit 100. percent Our you know we we're, our goal is 100, percent and anything less than that. Uh, we recognize we, we're not finished with kids, but having that shared purpose and, and really, you know, what it comes down to is that moral imperative that all of us share here. And I know in other schools, of course, is particularly around reading and literacy skills. We know the life outcomes of kids who have skill gaps, who have achievement issues around reading and writing. We know what happens. And for me in the high school, I was always kind of curious, like, how do we get, how do we support students at this uh, stage? And how do, how do we get to this stage where I have a student in grade 10 whose reading isn't uh, up to par? And when I came to this school, I, I, I learned really, really quickly, it wasn't a teacher problem and it wasn't a kid problem. It was a tool problem. And so now we have that shared purpose of we're developing our knowledge of the tools and we're doing that in a safe and vulnerable context. And we, again, as I mentioned at the beginning, have negotiated those shared beliefs. And that's been an awesome part of this conversation. And we, early on, we, we, we had to talk about lots of these things together, but never in a judgment way, just in a curious way. Okay, I, how do you know this from that? How do you know what to do next with the kid? Those are just questions that we're all going to have as professionals. And this isn't, yes, our identity is often wrapped up in in our work as educators, but what we're here for are the kids and we're okay being vulnerable enough to say I can be better for them. E-learnings, if you're interested at this point, uh, 70, almost 70 minutes into our conversation, 
the foundational learning is key. You can't step, you can't skip the first steps, which is how does this work? How can this work? Um, it's not just about, you know, getting the right diagnostic or buying the right box. Uh, for that, for that buy-in, you need to honor teacher voice and you need to prepare teachers that regardless of the box, they know how to use it for their kids at this time. And they can't do that unless we give them, not me, because I, I need Caitlin and Kyle and these folks to really do a lot of that, but unless we as a system give them that preparation. And it's not necessarily about a box. People ask me, Andrew, what program are you using? How much does it cost? And what I've told them is that, well, let's 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 start at the beginning here. It's not about the program. If we had the program, the magic bullet one, we'd all have it in our schools and we'd all be using it for the last, whatever, five, 10 years. Uh, it's about building up the teacher's mastery of the subject so that regardless of the program, they know what that kid needs. What we've also learned is that success is an exponential thing. Uh, it is not linear. Uh, what we find is that the more the kids, uh, and, and we know this for reading research for years, the more you read, the better you become as a reader, and the better you become as a reader, the more you read. But that also works for our school um, in terms of solving any problem. We're super excited. We have uh, some keen middle school uh, teachers right now who have uh, been doing a version of this work uh, for years, and we're now trying to support them as a lead team to respond again more systematically. Uh, and we can already feel the excitement in the conversations uh, around, like, how do we support those middle school students? Because we've had teachers who have been doing their darndest, and we just need to help them be more systematic. But again, no one is coming into that conversation going, oh, you simply must do this. It's what are you using? What does that tell you? What else do we need to know about? And just having those collaborative, safe conversations. And the last point is, and Kim alluded to it, and, and she says it better than me, but the teachers are the story here. Um, we have one of our, our teachers here and not even a classroom teacher. And if I asked 90% of those teachers to join us in this conversation tonight, they would have said, oh, Andrew, I'm, I'm sick all of a sudden. They, they, they do not want to celebrate themselves, but I'm super proud that I'm here and able to celebrate them on their behalf uh, because they're the ones who are doing the work. There are lots of supports, but it's the teachers who are uh, providing the tier one instruction uh, at the expense of their own time and energy to learn these things to better to respond to kids. So I'm incredibly proud to be the principal of uh, New Glasgow Academy and to lead this staff in this work. It has been um, the great fulfilling time of my professional career, and uh, I'm just incredibly excited to continue to work with these folks. So thank you, everyone for uh, listening. We're, I think we're going to have a few moments uh, for questions, and I, I probably should give a, a shout out to uh, Dr. Jamie Metzala for uh, sending Alicia our way and also answering my calls when I need to be vulnerable and say, I don't understand this. Can you explain this thing to me? And she, uh, I break a sweat uh, talking to her and listening to uh, the explanations of, <laughs> of things. I'm like, no, no, I, I got to bring it down. And I, I got to start more, more foundational. So thank you, everybody. And Alicia, I'll let you uh, take us from here. Thank you so much for that. Uh, all of you for that. Um, there's a, the, the chat has just exploded with so many positive comments. I'm going to share it with all of you after this so that you can have a, have a look at that. Um, but we did have some questions in there too. And I want to start out with um, one that was asked a few times that I think is really the elephant in the room. 
So at the beginning of the presentation, you were talking about what was going on. And you mentioned reading recovery a number of times, reading recovery is, of course, in pretty much every school in Nova Scotia. So there's some questions in here about, you know, how is that working in your school now? Are you doing um, structured literacy in tier one and tier two? And then kids are going into reading recovery and doing whole language for tier three. Like, how is how is that happening? Or have you replaced that with something else? Definitely haven't replaced, and it's a fair question. And one of those that's one of those things where we think about congruency around the tier one, two, three interventions. Our reading recovery teacher is fantastic and deeply immersed in uh, the the learning of of structured literacy. And I think what she would say is she's able to move kids more quickly through her process uh, because of the foundational skills they're coming in with. We've seen lots uh, recently, Reading Recovery has been sharing lots about how phonics is featured within in their lessons. Um, and I would say our uh, our Reading Recovery teacher, you know, is is staying within the course of, of the Reading Recovery process, but also knows, uh, is able to use that professional judgment in the moment to really leverage those skills that the kids are being taught in tier one to make the gains really quickly. And what she's seeing is, you know, what used to take 50 lessons, Again, I'm, I'm making up numbers because I don't know enough. Uh, we used to take 50 lessons. Now it takes 15. And that's one of those things where, you know, this it's a change man management process. It's not a light switch. Um, there are lots of structures in place that say this is what you have as a school and this is what you need to do. And it's about, um, for us right now, trying to find how do we be effective within those structures. And I think our reading recovery teacher is doing an awesome job collaborating and then really going back with the classroom teacher saying, here's what I'm learning about Johnny. Here's what I'm seeing. Here's what I'm working on and having that collaborative work together. So yeah, we still have reading recovery. Uh, students still enter the program and, and follow it, but I would say we're making a lot more gains because of the, uh, the tier one instruction and our reading recovery teacher would probably echo that if she wasn't at the rank right now. That's great. I noticed on the one slide as well, you said that there were no um, students that were referred into reading recovery out of grade one that was that this year that was last no... year last year okay. okay yeah we were going back and and like there was there was nobody left that wasn't at <laughs> the level yeah that that's fantastic yeah lots of other comments um people wondering uh, saying you know this is so exciting has your success affected other schools in Nova Scotia um so are you seeing movement in Nova Scotia has there been uptake of, of structured literacy like throughout your um, educational center or province-wide are you seeing a lot of movement? Yep we are. Uh, I mean I would say the six pillars of instruction is pretty good evidence that um, there was some urgency at the provincial level to recognize that there were some gaps um, in our in our instruction uh, when we think of the rope. What we've what I've noticed and again it all it comes back to some of those relationships with other principals and you know Caitlin with other SLPs and teachers with other teachers there's a lot of those quiet conversations happening and they're, they're more and more out in the open having those uh, discussions because it is contagious. Like the enthusiasm of talking to teachers at NGA, it, it would be tough not to get excited unless they're all lying to me when I talk to them. They seem to be pretty positive and enthusiastic and that stuff just catches on. And at some point you can't, you just can't deny that how good it feels to hear the stories that Kim's telling because she would be able, if we gave her an hour, she could fill an hour with those success stories. So that stuff is is contagious locally. And I would say, and Janet probably can speak to this better, but I would say provincially, just the six pillars um, is a pre pretty clear indicator that we know we, we have some stuff we can do better for kids. 
Yeah, I, I would agree with you, Andrew, and I, I will say um, it's hard, you know, you're sending out, especially when everyone is so tired and you're saying, can you come for another meeting, SLPs or school psych, or let's come and talk about a message. And they're just all on board and changing their schedules and making time and a priority because at the end of the day, it makes a difference in their work and it makes them feel good about doing the right work for kids and supporting families with this as well. So it's it's uh, it definitely keeps people motivated when you see other people working so hard and being excited about it. One of the questions I get asked is, you know, how did your teachers respond? Or we, we did this during COVID. We did this with masks on. We did this when it's never, maybe never been tougher to teach kids in a long, long time. And teachers came for lunch and learns. And yeah, like the food was good, but that wasn't the reason they came. But we had 100% attendance at our lunch and learns of our teachers as option. Like it was just, this is what we're going to do today, folks. There's pizza this week. There's soup, you know, in, in another three weeks. And it was just contagious. And so people say, you know, we weren't we shouldn't we have been pulling back or weren't most schools or a lot of schools saying let's do less because of the stress that everybody's under. But what we found was that it was the teachers who were clamoring for more. And it just again was that exponential enthusiasm where once they were getting into it, they wanted to know more and they got excited to do more. And we had happened to have a lead team that you want to listen to, um, but instead of withdrawing and kind of closing our doors and going, I'm just going to do what I have to to get through the day. It was the opposite. It's let's let's use this time to make a real difference. And it was just, I mean, it's still even these days, like it's it, we're not done. It's still super super exciting to to hear the enthusiasm, even when we are in December and everybody's everybody's tired, but. Yeah, it's definitely um, a challenging time for educators the last couple of years, for sure. And I've noticed that the, the teams that I meet that are the most energized and are still enjoying their jobs are the ones that have really started to lean into this learning. And that's definitely what they, the vibe that I got from all of you the first time that I met you. <laughs> um, and I have a, a question that I want to ask. Um, and, and this is really to and well, actually not to Andrew. I want the rest of the team to answer this one. So when, when I first spoke to Andrew and every time I have spoken to Andrew, he makes the point that, you know, it is the teachers that have done absolutely everything. And, you know, he stresses the importance of your roles and he sings your praises. And, and I completely agree. But I think as well that the role of the principal is invaluable and that this sort of um, team building, this sort of culture shift really won't happen without a really strong principal. So I would like to give the team, not Andrew, a chance to comment on the role of the principal in this uh, in this transformation that you've had at your school. I'll uh, I'll speak first. It, it's really the foundation. We weren't always at this place with the culture of our school where we could share openly and be vulnerable and um, teach with our door open and, and and welcome people in. You know, Andrew's curious by nature and he asks lots of questions and uh, listens to what we have to say. And he makes his teachers feel like they're the experts in the building because they're the ones in the trenches doing it every day. And and now that I'm I'm in out of the classroom in a learning support role, I can honestly say that there's no harder job in the world than being a classroom teacher, especially during COVID times and, and with all this new learning initiative. So Andrew has really valued what we say and our experiences and listened and in a non-judgmental way and uh 
he has a, a great way of, of lifting us up and uh, when we're down and, and supports us and listens to our, our crazy ideas. And, uh, and he'll be the first to tell us that, hey, I don't think that that will work or, or let's try that or whatever. So we, we really do feel like we can say what's on our mind uh, in a respectful way and that we're heard and we're listened to. And, uh, and uh, he gets that same respect back from us. So thank you, Andrew, for uh, making our team what it is today. Thanks, Kim. I, this was not part of the agenda. I don't think Alicia. No, Andrew is very. Andrew is very. Andrew's itchy. Yeah. And yes, I know you are. But I, I need to say that from a regional perspective, Andrew is very courageous. So, and he's done it in such an unassuming way, in a kind way. But he's pushed pushed people along in their thinking, and we've all grown from it as individuals, personally, professionally, but also regionally. And so others are learning from him and collectively learning. And it takes courage to tackle some of these big issues of the day. And he's done that um, with grace. And uh, it's wonderful to see when you go into that building as someone who doesn't work in the building every day, you feel the shift and you see the shift in how people are feeling about this work. And that's that does rest with the principal. Thanks. I think it's probably just about time to wrap it up. But before we do, I just wanted to give each of you a chance to just give your sort of parting last words and maybe a, like a word of advice for another person in your role somewhere in Canada that is uh, beginning to make this shift or curious about what they can do to get started. So just a quick little one little piece of advice that you would have for someone else in your role somewhere else in Canada. And we're going to start with Kyla. I think one of the questions when I was just looking at the chat was about how to implement this in other schools and how to get people interested. And I think my advice would just be to start having conversations that the teachers really are experts on their students and start having conversations with them about what they're seeing and what they're concerned about and, and what they think is missing and um, how the progress is going. And, and then you can start to help them build knowledge around those things. Thanks. Kim. I think, um, you know, uh, like I said before, give, give teachers the knowledge and the tools to do better and, and they're not gonna let you down. They will, they will do that. We all want to do what's best for our kids. And, and I guess, you know, never stop reflecting on your own practice and, and, and thinking about how, how can I do things better? Um, you know, keeping the things that, that worked for us in the past and, uh, and tweaking those things that we know aren't working. So, uh, Caitlin. I think it's okay to not know all of the answers. You know, Andrew mentioned this earlier, like this, that may not be the perfect story, but it's, it's a step in the right direction. And so it's okay to, not know all the answers, but again, just have your team and I'd say challenge each other to think about <laughs> and reflect on what you're doing. Thanks. Janet? Uh, I would say inclusive education and equitable education is all of our work. And so um, to challenge the silos, help break them down and build bridges across different departments so that you know, this, this issue doesn't sit just with literacy alone, that, it, that we all can come together and contribute to uh, the greater good for our students. Thank you. And I'm going to let Andrew have the last word. So I just, before I let Andrew have his last word, I just wanted to thank all of you. That was great advice. And 
there's so much, uh, so many positive comments of people who are just really thrilled to be able to hear this story. I think it's really inspirational for school teams, not just in Nova Scotia, but right across Canada, who are looking at these things, maybe not sure about where to start. Um, so thank you very much. And we will let Andrew close it out. Uh, I would say those schools you read about as those incredible turnaround schools um, started out with just humans who were probably uh, believed in kids, teachers, and were curious about what we could do different. Um, there's no magic in this other than like caring deeply about it um, and believing that you can do it and not waiting for people to tell you what to do. And my best piece of advice would be to surround yourself with really smart people because it makes you look a lot better than you actually uh, may be. So I just keep telling people that uh, we are we, we're, we're as strong of a school in, in this lead team um, because of the people who are in it um, and their abilities. So uh, principals, uh, if you don't know the answers, uh, find people who do, because I guarantee they're probably just down the hall in a classroom or in an office just waiting for you to say, like, look, can you talk to me about literacy? And I bet you things will take off just from that conversation. Well, thank you very much, all of you. And thank you, everyone who um, joined us tonight to listen to this conversation. Uh, let's keep the conversation going. Dyslexia Canada is going to be continuing this series in the new year. If you have any stories of amazing teams across Canada or individual stories of people who are really moving forward with implementing the sorts of things that we know students need so that they can realize their right to read, please reach out to me at Dyslexia Canada and we would love to feature those stories as well. So thank you everyone and have a great night. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dyslexia Canada's Spotlight. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe and share the link to this episode on social media. And let's keep the conversation going. If you have a story of progress that you would like to share, please get in touch with us by visiting dyslexiacanada.org.